You're listening to the New World Order, a podcast series from Gateway House, which observes, defines, and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world. Together, we will make America great again. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless America. Welcome to the New World Order. I'm your host, Vipratap Vikram Singh. At the end of the Second World War, the world was left in an aftermath filled with destroyed cities, ruined economies, and millions dead. A solemn promise of never again served as the banner for rebuilding. From financial institutions, multilateral organizations, and bilateral bonds, the decision was togetherness would prevent further conflict. It was under this guise of post-war reconstruction that the United States was able to establish itself as a global superpower. The United States foreign policy since the end of World War II has been based on some fundamental pillars which revolved around the shedding of isolationism and seizing the initiative in shaping the future. The promotion of democracy and capitalism, the global fight against communism, championing free and international trade, creating a peaceful and secure Pacific and Atlantic oceans, funding international organizations like the United Nations, universalizing human rights and advocating nuclear non-proliferations. No matter what the field, the US sought to lead. This drive for leadership, coupled with an unscathed post-war infrastructure, meant that the United States could literally fund this, as seen from many of its international development schemes, like the Marshall Plan from 1948, which gave $12 billion at the time to economically revitalize post-1945 Europe. However, the United States was not unchallenged in becoming this global superpower, and the Cold War saw a clash of ideologies between the USSR-driven communists and the US-driven capitalists. This conflict saw the United States further assert itself as it involved itself directly and indirectly in dozens of countries across the world over the course of 50 years. Under the Cold War, the United States often implemented policies which had a profound negative impact on other nations, be it the repeated violation of state sovereignty and international law by meddling in domestic affairs of Asian, Latin American and African countries, the establishment of an unbalanced trade system and practices which benefited the West, or a hypocrisy towards human rights protection and nuclear weapons. The United States did everything it could to protect and further its own interests. By 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed from within, and with the end of the Cold War, the United States emerged as the sole superpower. Its leadership was now the key in shaping the relative stability of the global geopolitical order. In the 26 years which have passed since then, the United States has remained a world leader through its policies, providing much of the funding to global institutions like the United Nations and its organs, which are fundamental to a successful multilateral peace process. However, this has come at a cost as seen in 2002, when the United States was able to launch a war on terror in Iraq, a highly criticized move as it was not sanctioned by the United Nations Security Council. How does all of this tie back to the Trump administration? Since being elected in November 2016, Donald Trump has made it clear that the United States will adopt an America-first attitude. Such an attitude means that the world is faced with a United States administration which looks to undo the very leadership role which it created, opting instead for a return to protectionism, isolationism, increased defense expenditure, and reduced multilateral spending. It is here that we begin our discussion today and joining me to discuss the policies that are emerging from the Trump White House and to map the potential impact that they may have across the world is Ambassador Neelam Deo, Director at Gateway House. 
Well, it's good to be back. Taking us straight into the uh, ideas that we plan on discussing today, it's important to keep a perspective uh, which includes things that are happening around the globe, but also not just political events. Trade is just as important. President Trump has continued to remain the same kind of unpredictable that we saw when he was just a candidate. Uh, Even though he's in the nascent stages of his presidency, less than two months in, he's already begun to implement his campaign promises, some of which have international impact. Uh, Perhaps the most notable one is the the offhanded way that he uh, pulled the United States away from the two-state solution between Palestine and Israel. So, Ambassador, the first question that I really want to start this discussion off with is the removal of this decade-old aspect of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, uh, It can easily be seen as the first sign of the United States shifting from an age-old role of a global peacekeeper. Um, And if that is the case, what else can we expect, especially in West Asia, which has often relied on the United States to provide a steadying hand towards Israel? You know, uh, whether this is uh, a positive or not uh, actually remains to be played out. And it depends a great deal on what uh, the attitude and the sympathies that a country or an individual feels towards Israel, and particularly towards the positions that Israel takes relating to the Palestinians. But the fact is that uh, this is a major change, and uh, it has immediately impacted the way the Palestinians look at the United States. It was not that the Palestinians really saw the United States as neutral between themselves and Israel, but they did see it as inescapable in terms of trying to arrive at any kind of an arrangement which Israel could then be expected to fulfill. Because although the Europeans have helped to fund the Palestinian government ever since it was set up, Uh, there was no other actual power which could have enforced anything on Israel. So to that extent, it is a big shift. So what does this mean for the rest of West Asia? The Middle East is in uh, turmoil, uh, partly of its own making and partly of the shift in American policies of the previous president as well as of this one. Uh, The uh, so-called Arab uh, uprisings, have played themselves out, but in tragic ways. Uh, The agreement, the nuclear agreement with Iran, which was led by the United States, although supported fully by the other members of the permanent five of the Security Council, as well as the European Union and Germany, has of course uh, let loose the, the, has so offended uh, Saudi Arabia that it has imbued every difference in the region with a sectarian Shia-Sunni kind of uh, nuance. Uh, Yemen, of course, has become the latest victim of this sectarian coloring of any differences that countries have. And Saudi Arabia is at the head of a coalition supported by the United States, which has been bombing Yemen. And then, of course, you have the continuing uh, civil war in Syria. Everybody is in it for their own reasons. Uh, The Russians have military assets they want to protect. Turkey is fighting the Kurdish elements. Uh, Iran is in there uh, to retain its supply routes to Lebanon. The U.S. has been arming sundry terrorist groups simply because they oppose Assad, who 
who is of course fighting for his life, so to speak. Uh, the U.S. Uh, now, of course, she's left out because the numerous peace talks that John Kerry, as Secretary of State, led did not actually get anywhere because of the immense hostility projected continually towards Russia, which has become a dominant player in this one conflict in the Middle East. Uh, now, Russia, Iran, and Turkey have spearheaded peace talks in Astana, in uh, Kazakhstan, and the Americans have been invited. But the problem within all this is that everybody is supposed to be cooperating to fight ISIS. And in fact, since Trump became president, there are some signs of better cooperation in taking on ISIS, which has certainly been pushed out of many of the towns in Syria. And separately, the U.S. is supporting the fight of the Iraqis against ISIS in Mosul. So those, uh, those are important changes that are taking place. But it remains a fact that, you know, Turkey is opposed to the Kurdish and the Iranians who are fighting on the ground. Things uh, cannot, these things cannot improve uh, quickly. Some of these have to play themselves out. The uh, uh, terrorist groups that have acquired large caches of arms will continue to fight because they have little else at stake and they have these arsenals. Once they finish an arsenal with one group, they often just switch to another group that is being supported from the outside. These kinds of uh, wars uh, take a very long time to play out, but it can only help if Iran is included and if U.S. and Russia move together. Ambassador, the policies that do, that President Trump is implementing, um, be it the the reversal of the two-state uh, the two-state solution, um, the 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 statements that he's made against putting boots on the ground and withdrawing from the West Asian theater, what does that mean for the region? Does that mean that the United States is no longer going to play? Uh, a well-established role as a global protector and if that is the case then what uh, are we looking at a situation where the US reverses its policies on being a global peacemaker does this mean that there's a chance of further conflict escalating in West Asia uh, no uh, I think that the United States uh, President Trump may say uh, one thing but the government is often doing something else for instance, the number of forces, American forces on the ground in Iraq fighting alongside the Iraqis in Mosul has actually been increased in the last few weeks. So I think it's very difficult for a country like the United States, which is engaged in many different ways and with different intensity in conflicts all over the world, to just simply fold up and go home. So I don't think the United States will be... Uh, simply returning to the kind of isolation that was possible between the First and the Second World Wars. <coughs> but it is, I think it would be appropriate to expect that it will try not to enter into too many new conflicts. I'm glad that you've touched on the disconnect between the policies and the actual 
the kind of things that can be implemented in in the real world because as recently as february 20th the united states reiterated to the north atlantic treaty organization that uh, the member states would have to increase defense spending a move which has uh, which has definitely set off a wave of expenditure on uh, defense purchases and weapons and uh, r&d on, on a whole um, this can definitely be seen as an arms race across Europe and it's notable that while the US is calling its for its own allies in NATO to increase expenditure the United States as well is in planning to increase its own defense expenditure as well so ambassador with the United States always having positioned itself as a global police force um you know willing to send troops arms aid wherever it's required sometimes where it's not required um if we're looking at this kind of a world where the US is less and less involved in global in the in the establishment of global security what does this mean for the rest of the world's international peace and security well i would say that the the united states has certainly acted uh, to provide security to its friends and allies as it always says it has always said that it is acting to ensure the security of its friends and allies who are these allies uh, they are nato member countries western europe principally uh, that will certainly include uh, canada it will include australia it will certainly include uh, israel to whose security the united states has been fully committed but that's not the whole world and in fact the as economics goes that is becoming a smaller and smaller part of the world so the united states has announced an increase 50 billion dollars of its own defense budget that's a lot uh, and in the meanwhile the pressure on the europeans to increase their defense budgets is increasing uh, i think that there are two or three implications here which we all need to note one is that if every european country actually does spend 2% of its gdp on defense uh, the german defense forces will become the largest force uh, within nato Uh, because it has a much bigger economy than the UK or France and it's not clear that Europe is ready for that or that Germany itself which has been very reticent about a powerful military is ready for that uh are the Amer- uh, Europeans going to be buying more weapons yes i think they are and because of harmonization policies within nato that will benefit a lot of american arms de- uh, makers as well as the european companies now a lot of this pressure on the europeans from the previous government from the obama government and its predecessors because this talk of 2% of gdp is a long standing position uh, was because of the expressed uh, hostility against russia president trump has made it clear that he does not regard russia in the same Dogs as his predecessors. Uh, he has seen uh, has been much more uh, hostile uh, on uh, China, but his hostility towards China has been expressed largely in trade terms. We have seen his Secretary of Defense speak very harshly on uh, when he said in his confirmation hearing that uh, China would not even be allowed access. to some of the islands in the south china sea uh, if uh, the its intentions were unfriendly and hostile but we have not seen uh, president trump say anything of the kind 
Meanwhile, of course, China has militarized all those islands. Uh, it has uh, uh, basically weakened ASEAN so much that the member countries, small ones, Philippines, uh, uh, Cambodia, Laos, have already drawn much closer uh, to uh, uh, to China. So has Malaysia, which has its own uh, political problems to deal with. So we do not know whether this increased budget, how they will be used and how they will play out. Um, Neelam, actually just drawing on the, po- on the point that you made about China, while, um, while Trump has definitely been uh, engaging China on uh, trade, and I'll get to that in my next question, the one thing which has really emerged is the is Trump's talk about increasing the the United States Navy. The effort to increase the U.S. Navy to uh, to a, to the largest that it's ever been um, is definitely sending waves across uh, across China because the the natural uh, theater where this where these ships would be used is the South China Sea. So is that also an an arena which we could see? conflict brewing because of these uh, these policies? I, I think you could, because in the meantime, China has also announced, probably in retaliation, a five-time increase in its marine force. Uh, of course, China has now, uh, its principal maritime interests remain the South China Sea, but it also now has created maritime interests in the Indian Ocean, with Gwadar port having become operational already and it is building a base in Djibouti. So I think we can certainly uh, anticipate uh, some kind of uh, face-offs in the maritime sphere between a larger American Navy and a larger uh, Chinese uh, Navy. And of course, we must always keep in mind that the navies of both countries also have um, uh, air force, air wings. So. Uh, these kinds of face-offs in the past have consisted of uh, Chinese aircraft buzzing uh, American ships in the South China Sea. And those are themselves, they are signals, but they are also, uh, can also be dangerous. Okay, now I'd like to transition into international trade. The rollback that the world is seeing from the United States is not only limited to its involvement in uh, international peace and security, but it's also present in its uh, withdrawal from several trade commitments like uh, like mainly the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, Ambassador Deo, the TPP and the TTIP were were mega trade deals which would have brought about a liberal would would have brought about liberal trade across the world. Instead, the United States is now leaning towards more protectionist uh, more protectionist measures, be it through the policies of uh, you know hire American and buy American or the pro- or the proposition of increased tariffs from off on offshore businesses. How can all of this affect the international economy? Is it possible that these protectionist measures could actually backfire on the U.S.'s uh, plans for increased growth? You know, I think it's become clear uh, over the years and as the research has shown that uh, these, uh, that protectionism does not generate growth. If anything, it inhibits growth. But I think we also have to recognize that at least the TTP was political in its intent and not necessarily only a trade agreement. And President Obama had repeatedly said 
that it was uh, they must he you know the United States must make the rules of trade in for the region and not allow China. And of course, uh, it was political in its intent by the very exclusion of China from among the countries uh, that uh, were included in the TPP. The TTIP is more complex, and I think that the essential features of the two agreements, uh, which need to be noted, are the increased uh, autonomy which they provided for multilateral corporations, especially in taking on states as uh, uh, in terms of uh, being able to sue uh, different governments. Uh, those were the, uh, the kind of uh, provisions that there was a lot of protest against by trade unions in the United States, in uh, the European countries, and uh, in Australia, for instance, which would have been a member of the TPP. But those kinds of measures were strongly protested because the multinational corporations have already become so powerful and they already dominate global economies, especially the global uh, supply chains, that this would have further reduced the powers of governments. But I think that from the Indian point of view, we have to also be aware that we were not uh, included in the TPP negotiations either. And we would have been further excluded from uh, trade with even our partners in ASEAN countries. Uh, and that, so the, this gives India a respite of a few years in which to try and reform its own domestic procedures, its customs procedures, its infrastructure so that we become a less high cost manufacturing uh, country. Uh, in order to be able to trade uh, with the rest of the world. So I uh, do not see these agreements. A mega trade agreement cannot be defined as liberal when it is exclusive. And it certainly would have uh, possibly increased trade by small percentages. And the Peterson Institute, which uh, does these kinds of studies, actually came out with very small figures that would have uh, increased as a result of these agreements coming into force. It does seem like the world really isn't waiting to see how international trade reacts to these protectionist measures. Um, bodies like the G20 have actually opted to remove key terms that uh, against protectionism, um, as seen in a draft communique which, uh, which was uh, available to news agencies. Um, what do you make of this, uh, uh, Ambassador? Is it um, a, a chief multilateral organization like the G20? Is it trying to remain productive and inclusive by uh, by removing these terms, or is it or is it more apparent that um, that these that these bodies are actually bending to the wave of protectionist practices which are sort of sweeping across the world? You know, the G20 is eventually a body of governments. And these governments, uh, some of them, especially the Europeans, the G20 is still dominated, as you know, by the United States and West European governments. Numerous West European governments are there. The EU is there in its own right. Even Spain has been included, even though it is not one of the 20 largest uh, governments. Uh, so what we are seeing in the functioning of the G20 is a much greater input of European concerns at the moment. 
and Europe is going through a phase not just of rising right-wing political parties, but of protectionism itself. And, you know, the most obvious uh, and in some ways the most dramatic example of that was with uh, Brexit, which was certainly a vote against immigration, but it was also a kind of closing of the gates, uh, wanting uh, countries that want to shrink into their borders rather than be open, because they fear uh, competition, they fear what comes in. Uh, certainly immigrants are not acceptable, but even trade uh, does not uh, is not seen as open and as uh, beneficial. So the G20 is, uh, is reflecting uh, those concerns. And I think that there is also uh, at the back of uh, the mind of many of the negotiators as of from these from many governments is the fact that employment opportunities are going to be shrinking further with artificial intelligence, with 3D manufacturing, etc. And therefore they are somehow casting about trying to at least preserve what employment is available within their countries. Of course, for a country like India, as well as for many other countries, including the UK, uh, and most developed countries as well, services is a much larger component of GDP, and it is services that need to be liberalized rather than more trading commodities. There's one thing that we can see, it's the amount of reliance that the international community has had on the United States. Um, to take for example, the United Nations receives 22% of its budget from the United States. And the Trump administration has made indications that it is going to cut the funding to the United Nations and other uh, programs under, the, under its umbrella. Um, what does this mean for the international community? Uh, what does this mean for international organizations like the UN? Yeah. Well, you know that China has already become the second largest contributor and it will probably raise its uh, contribution even further. So uh, it's unfortunate that the, that the U.S. is uh, cutting down its contribution not only to the U.N. but to its own state department. Uh, but other countries are likely to step in because most countries value a, quite a lot of the work that the U.N. does. So, for example, China has already increased its contribution, become the largest contributor to bodies like UNICEF and uh, UNESCO. Belgium stepped in with support to uh, those programs in uh, developing countries whose funding was going to be cut because of the U.S. gag rule, you know, the, the rule that no money can go into any organization that not only offers abortion but even counsels uh, uh, women uh, who are too young or may not be in a willing pregnancy. So I think that other countries will step in in bits and pieces to pick up these. The big increase is likely to come from China, as we are already seeing. Uh, possibly Russia may also increase uh, its contribution. But we must remember also that there is not only the UN budget, there is also all the money that is raised every time there is a crisis, as for peacekeeping, as for refugees, and the United States has been a very generous contributor to all of those. Uh, I think some of that may still continue because the Americans as a whole feel uh, themselves engaged uh, with the rest of the world. Uh, the government will then, uh, we will see how that evolves. These foreign policy changes that we're seeing from the United States, which clearly have a much larger impact on the rest of the world, 
is it enough evidence for the international community to at least attempt a restructuring into a multipolar world order and um, similarly if such a multipolar world was to come about which nations do you believe would lead it there's no question that we are entering a more uh, multipolar uh, uh, world uh, regardless of whether the united states withdraws itself a little bit or not because the economic uh, positions have changed the economy economic tilt to the east has become more and more pronounced and then there are countries which are becoming so important in their regions and globally that they cannot continue to be ignored it seems to me that uh, a consensual arrangement rather than the kind of dominance that was exercised in the past by the united states and by its european uh, allies it's certainly a better situation so i do think that countries like india like indonesia like nigeria like turkey like uh, brazil like mexico uh, have a much larger uh, contribution to make uh, to global affairs and uh, they will come in with a different historical experience than the highly uh, militaristic imperial experience that the europeans came in with Uh, and the uh, sense of manifest de- destiny that the united states came in with so we may be heading into a more consensual situation it will certainly not come without problems without hiccups and there there one has no idea how that will play out as the role of the united states globally diminishes somewhat and as the role of the europeans diminishes much faster Thank you ambassador this was a very expansive episode and i think that we've been able to take a really wide look at the kind of changes that the white house is setting forth thank you so much for your time thank you next week on the new world order we'll be looking across the atlantic to europe where after a turbulent couple of years the uk is ready to invoke article 50 while the european union is set to see several of its members head into general elections We'll be discussing the lasting effect of these economic and social crises which have faced the European Union. You've been listening to the New World Order, a podcast series by Gateway House which observes, defines and seeks to understand the changing political trends across the world.